And so I was like, Lord, what do you want me to speak to these guys? Giants in my eyes. You've been doing this for years. You have this down really well, and we're just four or five months in, and we're learning a lot, making mistakes, but making some progress. And a couple years ago, um, about a year and a half ago, the Lord gave me this picture that he wanted to transform our church from a cruise ship to a fishing vessel. And cruise ships, I love cruising, by the way. You know, we're actually going on a cruise for Christmas. It's fun. And, you know, on cruise ships, if you've never been on, you, like, eat, you know, till you're, you can eat no more. It's all about me. I walk in, and the captain's, like, so glad you're here. We love you. And everybody's, like, attending to you. And they give you great food. At night, they entertain you. And all the focus is on the inside of the ship. And then you look at a fishing vessel, and the Lord says he's going to turn our church into a fishing vessel. And that we are going to be all hands on deck. We're actually looking a little bit inside, but mostly we're looking on the seas for the fish. And our captain is Jesus, and we have to tell him whatever whatever we want to do. And you know what? Cruise ships are great. Everything smells good. You look good. And fishing ships are kind of smelly. You know, they're messy. There's like guts and blood, and, you know, it's hard work. You go to bed tired. And so I I really, during prayer this morning, so God uh, God put a message on my heart for you guys this morning. And you judge it and you, you determine whether it's from God or not. But even during a prayer time, I felt like you guys are a lean, mean fishing machine. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're talking about unity. You're grappling with the issues at the conference. And, you know, there's so much that you guys got going on. And I just want to compliment you, really. Like, I'm just looking at you. And we just when we grow up, we want to kind of be like you guys, uh, if I could say it like that. And I felt like... I wanted to give perspective. Well, why are you guys, why are we striving to be a fishing vessel? Why are you guys a lean and machine, lean, mean fishing machine? You know, is it just to catch fish? And then we have a nice bry, a fish bry at the end. And, you know, we're having a great time. So the answer, I, so I want to answer that question. Why? Why are we doing this? And there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons. So one more question. So imagine if Luke and Zandi came and they said, you know what? We have to leave. We are leaving, and then this is going to be my last message. And so I'm going to share the most important thing I've learned over the years, and I love you guys, and I'm going to share. How many people would like, if they got that text or that WhatsApp, they're like, I'm going to be there that Sunday. And you'd be taking notes, and it's like, man, this is probably going to be the most, the, something that's dear and near and dear to Luke's heart. Well, Jesus did the same thing. Right before he left earth, he gave us something that was the last thing he really gave us. And he could have done a lot of things. So I want to look at that this morning. And actually, in law, in American law, we have something called the Dying Declaration. You ever see those American law uh, shows and it's like, objection, your honor, overruled. Well, (laughs) one of the objections is hearsay. Like if I hear something that someone said, I can't say that in court. It won't be admissible because you know what? Like I probably got it wrong. There's one exception. It's called the dying declaration. And the dying declaration is someone on their deathbed and they're saying something Well, that is so important, and it's inherent that whatever that person said on their dying deathbed, it's probably important, it's probably accurate, so it could be admissible into evidence. So this morning, Jesus had a dying declaration, and literally, he died 
uh, shortly after that. And that's found in Mark 16, 14, verses 14 to 16. It's called the Great Commission. Uh, that's, you know, we, we, and we, anybody heard the Great Commission? You guys call it? How do you say it in Afrikaans? Test. Okay. I thought I'm in South Africa here. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's read it together. Mark sixteen fourteen through 16. Is everybody awake? <laughs> All right. Here we go. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven. As they were eating, he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus died and had risen, and then soon after that, he was going to ascend into the clouds. He, Jesus said in verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So in a sense, this is Jesus's dying declaration, the Great Commission. And of all Jesus's sayings, teachings, parables, sermons, you could argue that this is the most important thing Jesus said, the most important command. And the last command was the Great Commission. So why did Jesus leave this last? Why is the gospel message so important? Well, there's several answers, obviously, but the answer I felt led to talk about this morning is the reality of hell. You know, it's a message that I don't preach very often. It's not really preached often, and I kind of hate to bring it. (laughs) I don't want to be this hellfire and brimstone guy. I remember in college, like, we used to have these guys, and they'd have these signs, and it says, turn or burn, and, you know, you're kind of like, ah, so embarrassing, you know? And they're like, you, in the short skirt, put a short, you know, they were just so condemning, and it was like, ah, oh, man. But even John 3, 16, everybody knows that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have a, a eternal life. So, you know, we are saved, and we're going to heaven, but when you're not saved, you perish. So I want to look at what exactly that does, does that mean? And, and perhaps this is a message that's going to refocus you guys a little bit as a congregation and as individuals. That's my hope and prayer. I'm glad you guys are doing the Alpha Course soon. And my, my hope is that you individually and corporately, City Bowl, I mean, you guys got this beautiful facility. You're in such a strategic place. And you could really make a difference. And you are making a difference. And the difference is, is because of you guys, all the hard work, There are going to be souls that are going to hell that will not go to hell because of you guys. We forget about that. We just think, yeah, let's love and let's have a bride. And and it's good stuff. But people are getting saved from something. And, you know, Jesus gave us a glimpse of hell in the book of Luke. And that's what I want to focus on with the story of two people who died. And that's found in Luke 16, uh, starting in verse 19. If you can put that up there. And just a disclaimer, you know, Jesus gave a lot of parables and, and things, and parables were sort of, you know, stories, and a lot of them weren't real, but they were just great stories so people can identify. I don't believe this was a parable. This is a debatable issue, um, but I don't believe this is a parable because this, in this, there was two people, the rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And no other parables was a somebody's name given. So I believe Jesus pulled back the curtain and saying, this is what hell is like. 
And that's what I want to read today. So it says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So he was the GQ guy of the day. He was your Clint. (laughs) Sorry, Clint. Clint's like, why did you come back? (laughs) At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. You ever, you ever see someone like that, and you're like, oh, get the kids away, and, you know, you, you think, man, what did he do in life, and, and you, you almost prejudge someone like that, and long, and this is this, this man, Lazarus, he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his source. He was in a bad shape, and just on the outside, you're thinking, man, the rich man, poor Lazarus, but then the time came, and it'll come for all of us. 100%. <laughs> we all die sometime. In verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels came to carry him to Abraham's side, which is paradise or heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And I imagine at the funeral, you know, I wonder if Lazarus even had a funeral, if they just, you know, took his body and threw it wherever. But I'm sure, like, there was a lot of pomp and celebration of life for this rich man. That's not where it ended. It said the the rich man died also and was buried. And then it says in Hades, which is hell in Greek, where he was in torment, he, the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. What What a torturous picture. And I don't understand how this guy could be in hell, but yet he's seeing across the great chasm and he's seeing in heaven. That in itself is torture. So he called to him and he said, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. How many people love to have your water bottles? You know, hey, stay hydrated. You got to drink and and stuff. And have you ever like forgot your water bottle and it's like two hours later you feel so parched? Well, apparently there's no water in hell, but you're thirsty. And he says, dip the tip of my finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. You know, I read this, this, this story over and over, but a lot of times those little details, you just forget about that. And the rich man cried out for mercy. Why? Because there actually is no mercy in hell. The rich man was in agony and torment. And Jesus often described hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, you're just, oh. And actually, weeping and gnashing appears seven times in the New Testament as a description of the torments of hell. And there's no water. In in Mark, other places in Mark, it says the fire is not quenched. There's fire in hell. And um, several years ago, I had a community group, and I felt the Lord wanted me to teach on hell. <laughs> and I was like, sure. So I, I, I did some studies and stuff. And, um, and then I, I came across a guy who was the bass player in the worship team at my brother's church. This is before we were in heritage and stuff. And um, 
he's like, hey, this guy had this interesting experience. He, he says he went to hell and all that. And I remember I was studying it, so I was like, great. So I had him come to our home group. And um, this guy, his name was Bill Weiss. And this was the second time he ever shared publicly what happened to him. He actually wrote this book it, uh, later on uh, called 23 Minutes in Hell, and it's his story. And I'm going to leave it here if anybody wants it afterwards, and you guys could pass it around and share it, you know. Um, I'll let you fight for it. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so I'm going to read some excerpts from his book. Because ever since we had him come to my home group, my community group, um, it just wrecked me because I, I think I grasped that reality of hell. You know, and, and sometimes, honestly, when we're witnessing and then we get kickback or like our family, you know, we're sharing and, you know, it's hard to witness to your family and we get kickback. Part of us thinks like, well, suit yourself, you know, maybe you should go to hell. I don't know. I don't know. Am I the only one? Every so often you wrestle with these thoughts and someone makes you mad and you have that. But nobody deserves to go. Nobody. So let me just read, read some highlights from Bill's story. I'm going to be reading here for a little bit. On the night of November 23rd, 1998, Bill Weiss, he was a real estate broker, went to bed with his wife, and he's a Christian, and then suddenly found himself totally naked in a small prison cell in hell. And this is, his, this is what he says from his book. As I lay there on the floor of that cell, I felt extremely weak. I noticed that I had a body, one that appeared just as it is now. Lifting my head, I began to look around. Immediately, I realized that I wasn't alone in this cell. I saw two enormous beasts, unlike anything I had ever seen before. They were approximately 10 to, 15, 10 to 13 feet tall, probably double the size of Dylan who's a big guy, they were entirely evil and they were gazing at me with pure, unrestrained hatred, which completely paralyzed me with fear. I wanted to desperately get up and run, but as I lay on that wretched cell floor, I noticed that I had absolutely no strength in my body. Both beasts attacked me, threw him against a wall and plunged their claws into his chest and ripped them open. I pleaded for mercy, but they had none. And he said that like they would kind of rip, terrify his body, and then it would kind of grow back, and it would just be this cycle. And the pain he felt was a 100 times worse than pain you feel here on earth when similar stuff happens. And he said, I pleaded for mercy, but they had none. I was extremely nauseous from the terrible foul stench coming from those creatures. Somehow he managed to crawl out of that cell. Despite his lack of strength, Bill managed with all his might to stand, and this is what he said. I was horrified as I heard the screams of the untold multitude of people crying out in torment. It was absolutely deafening. I looked off to my right and could faintly see flames from afar that dimly lit the skyline. I knew the flames were coming from a large pit, a gigantic raging inferno. The ground was all rock, barren, and desolate. One of my most painful thoughts I had was the realization that I can never get to my wife. She had no idea of my existence in this place. I would never, ever see her again. The air was filled with smoke and a filthy, deathly, decaying odor hung in the oxygen-depleted atmosphere. One of the worst sensations I experienced was an insatiable thirst and dryness, sort of like the rich man. I was so extremely uh, thirsty I could see the outlines of people through the flames. 
The screams from the condemned souls were deafening and relentless. There was no safe place, no safe moment, no temporary relief of any kind. Through the panic and the deafening noise, I struggled to gather my thoughts. I'm in hell. This is a real place, and I'm actually here. And then he said, all of a sudden, a brilliant light appeared, and before me stood Jesus. Jesus reached down and touched my shoulder. My strength instantly returned, and I rose to my feet. My next thought was, why did you send me to this awful place, Lord? Before I could ask the question, he answered, because many people do not believe that hell truly exists. He told me, even some of my own people do not believe that hell is real. I asked him, why, don't I know, why didn't I know you when I was there? He said, I kept it from you in order for you to experience the hopelessness of those souls in hell. Jesus said to me, go and tell them about this place. It is not my desire to anybody to go there. And the power of Bill's testimony for him was that hell went from a concept, a theological idea, to reality. So my question, is hell a reality for you? The concept of hell. So let's, let's go back to our story. What Jesus is, and he's, Jesus is talking about hell. Luke 16, verse up to 25. It said, but Abraham responded to the rich man, and he said, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And it's another mystery. There's this great chasm that separates heaven and hell. At the moment of your death, your destiny is sealed. That's what these two stories tell us. There's no second chances, and the death is really the end of your opportunity. There's a lot of weird doctrines that go around and and debate this, but this is, this is reality. And life on earth, if you notice, is kind of a shadow of things to come. You know, sometimes, like at, at the conference, we experience the glory of God, the presence of God, and it's a foreshadow of what we're going to experience in heaven. And then there's been those moments in life, fear and agony and hatred, and those are foreshadowings of things that are going to get intensified for those who end up in hell. And for some people, I heard a quote, this is a great quote, for some people, earth is as close as they will get to heaven, and for hopefully most of us, earth will be as close to hell as we get sometimes too, because sometimes there's rough things in earth. So so the million dollar question for those of you who might, like, this is all new, and you're like, wow, I didn't even know there was a heaven and hell, and of course I want to go to heaven. (laughs) Um, The million dollar question, well, how do I get to heaven? Well, Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price. He exchanged, uh, we exchange our sinfulness for his righteousness, and we believe in him, and he saves us, and we become born again. And maybe at the end of the service, you might have an opportunity to say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want your spirit to be born in me, and I want to be born again. So let's finish the story in, in, chat, in verse 27, Luke 16. Um, so the rich man, you know, he's, he's bartering with Abraham. And then he realizes, yeah, there's no hope. And that's one thing Bill said. He had this, when he was in hell, he had this overwhelming sense of eternity, that it's final. And then so, so the rich man comes to that, and he, say, he answers, he says, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. He still remembered his, who his family was, his brothers. He still loved his brothers. 
You know, I mean, we, we, we go home tomorrow, and I can't wait to see my wife and my family and friends, you know. And he's the same way, but all of a sudden, he can never see it. What agony. It says, he says, for I have five brothers. Maybe he was the oldest, and he, he was just, you know, over, he, he, always had, he almost had this, like, fatherly admiration for his brothers. Or maybe he was the youngest and the baby, and everybody loved him. Or maybe he was in the middle. Who knows? But he said, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, he's begging. He says, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man understood the reality of heaven and hell. And he didn't say, go back and tell them to buy a bigger place, to save more money, to have a nicer car or donkey or whatever they had back then. He's like, tell them not to come to this place. But this, then there in verse 28, I think that's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Actually, should be one of our life verses. In verse 28, it says, let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. If we rephrase this, it would be send someone to warn them not to come to this place of torment called hell. And in a sense, that's the cry of hell. It's an eternal warning not to go there from someone who is there. And you know the sad part about that? We don't know this guy's name. He's there right now. Hasn't had a drink of water since this was written in torment. And his brother, I don't know where his brothers are. Hopefully they got saved somehow. I mean, it's just, it's such a sobering reality. And, and also it helps us because sometimes we get so worked up with such petty stuff. We let things get to us. We let offenses come in our way. And when we really have this perspective, we realize, you know what? This is the most important thing. Being with Jesus, loving each other, and bringing as many people as possible to save them from that place. If we could go and interview more people, if Jesus came and he, 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 he brought the veil back again and he picked out two other people, one in heaven and one in hell, it would be the same story. The person in hell would say, don't come here. Forget about living large in life. Do whatever it takes to go to heaven, not hell, and bring as many people with you. So two questions I have to close. Why did Jesus tell this story? Jesus told this story. This isn't me. I'm just a messenger. <laughs> um, well, first, Jesus, he knew hell is real. He knew of everybody that hell is real. And I wonder how many times he realized the severity, the torment of hell that helped push him to the cross, that helped him get his beard torn off and love us and forgive us. He had such a perspective. And it wasn't just, I mean, he did love us, but he also wants to save us so we would not perish. And second, Jesus told the story because he doesn't want anybody here to go to hell either. So the second question is, the two questions. First, why did Jesus say this? And the second is, what do we do as Christians with this reality of hell? What do we do with this message? It's an uncomfortable message. 
Well, first, the reality of hell gives us perspective. Because sometimes we focus, and we're scared to basically even bring up hell with people because it's offensive. Like, have you ever told someone, well, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to go to hell? I mean, that sounds mean. (laughs) It sounds harsh. But it's the reality. I I heard this example. um, It's kind of like a parachute. Imagine, you know, we're flying home tomorrow, and all of a sudden through the flight, someone has a parachute, and they're like, hey, who wants a parachute? And they're like, the parachute is so great. Man, it's going to make you look good. You're going to be happy. It's going to be comfortable. And then you try it on. You're like, man, this is kind of hard. You know, why do I have a parachute? It was actually life was funner without the parachute. But then if someone comes and they say, you know what? The plane is going down in 10 minutes. This parachute is going to save you from perishing. It's a totally different perspective. You know, sometimes when we come to the Lord, and you guys do it well, dying to live, there was this, the city on a hill, guys, they all had these T-shirts, like dying to live. And we all kind of felt like, ah, wish I could have had a cool T-shirt like that. You know, it's like, <laughs> mine says, Jesus loves you. And these guys are like hardcore. <laughs> and sometimes the parachute is dying to live. It's hard. But if you have perspective, it's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll sit in my seat with a parachute. And it's not as comfortable. But at least when I jump out of that plane, I'm going to see my family again and live. So that's the first reason. And the second reason why Christians need to hear this message in us today is that there's the reality of hell will renew our burden for the lost. Because honestly, it's intimidating witnessing. Sometimes you hear these people and they're like, yeah, and there's these great evangelists and they go and you're like, man, if I could just be like them. And then you go out there and you feel like you have this sock in your mouth and you're like, blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't know what you're doing. I feel like I'm a junior high guy going to like my locker and the girl I have the crush on, and I try to talk to her, and nothing comes out right, you know? (laughs) And sometimes we feel like that. But if we have a reality of hell, perhaps that would give us a little bit more boldness. Perhaps that would allow us not to push it away. Because there is a reality of hell. And I'll tell you two stories, um, a little bit vulnerable stories. There was this one guy... um, I lived at an apartment building, and I remember I was at I was worship at church, and the Lord's presence was on me. And I remember the Lord felt to me, and he says, hey, talk to this guy. His name was Dean, and he lived in apartment five. I was in apartment number one, and he's like, tell him his time is short, and he needs to get right with God. And I was like, yes, God, I'll do that. You know, I was overcome by God's presence. And I remember it was a couple of days, and Dean was like, he, he owned a bar, and he was really gruffy, kind of scrubby guy. And then I was like, hey, Dean. He's like, what do you want? And I was like, uh, nothing. And, and then so, like, the next day I was like, okay, I'll do it, Lord. And a couple days went by, and I just said, ah, you know, maybe that wasn't God. And I just kind of chickened out, honestly. <laughs> um, and then about two months later, I get a knock on my door, because I was the apartment manager over there. And they're like, and like is, she says, I'm so-and-so, I'm a sister of Dean Sherman. And I need to come to get his stuff. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, he was coming back from Las Vegas, and he got a hit. He, he was in an accident, a head-on collision, and he died. And, man, I felt bad. I still felt bad. <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't know. I, I hope God spoke to someone else with a little bit more guts and talked to Dean. But, you know, I don't know where he is. But sometimes we are the last person, the last opportunity. And we all want to hear from God. And I hear from God. I love giving words and, 
here, and everybody's like, thank you, that was so good. But sometimes give, God gives us these hard words to obey. Like you feel that little nudge to like, go talk to that person. And you're like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. But there might not be a tomorrow. And there was another story a couple years ago. We took a trip, my daughter and I. And on the way back, we were at the carousel. The luggage was coming out. And I was like, man, where's our luggage? Where's our luggage? And all the luggage would pretty much went, and there was a couple random things, and then the things stopped. And I was like, oh, no, I know what that means. They lost my luggage. So I was in business and stuff before, so, you know, I kind of know how to work the system sometimes. So I went to the counter, the lost luggage, and I was super nice and like, yeah, you know, can you help me? And, you know, because I like to be nice. And if people like you, they'll, they'll tend to help you more. And they're like, no, well, you know, they kind of were blowing me off. And then, so I, I used my other hat, so I kind of got mad. Well, I want to talk to your manager. And then, so I was getting into it with the manager, and how dare you? And, you know, I was tired and stuff, too, and really just ripping them up and down about my luggage. And I was mad, and then I went home, and I was calling everybody. I was sending emails, and I think this was I'm sending bad Yelp reviews. I mean, I was doing everything. And then the Lord spoke to me. And he said, if you were only as concerned about the loss, like you were concerned about your luggage. And I was like, it's so true. And I thought, you know, what's in my luggage? Stinky clothes and a couple trinkets that people are like, oh, thanks, and they'll never use. And I was so worked up about it. But there's loss all around you. I'll never forget that. And the Lord, he wants us in... He wants us to notice, you know, I should be crying out for the lost all around me. And I know a lot of you have been and you're doing it, but maybe some of you, there's other things, even kingdom things that have dulled your edge. Dulled your edge. What if like my wife was in the hospital and she, you know, it was touch and go. I would be there. I'd be fighting for her. I'd do everything to come and help her. We need that same kind of fervor for, for the lost. And the reality is, is there is a circle in your life of people that only you could reach. You know, like maybe you're praying like, Lord, send Luke to this person. <laughs> send Luke to my neighborhood. You know, send Luke to the grocery store. And then he, there's someone, but no, God's sending you. If not you, then Who? And if not now, then when? That's why Jesus gave us the Great Commission. The last thing, his dying declaration. Because he wants us to be joined eternally with him. Spend eternity, experience all this. But he also does not want anybody to go to hell. And he's willing to give his life for it. So there's that uh, verse back in Mark 16, 15, that it's, uh, Jesus said, it's the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So I just wanted to tweak it, the California CIV, California International Version. But the first one is, go into your home with your family and preach the gospel to them. It's part of the commission. Your family, your home. It's hard to witness in your home. And, you know, it, it's, it, it wears you out after a while. You're like, eh, not another one of these. And you know what? Sometimes you can talk and sometimes you just, you, 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 you show by your actions. Like when all the Josh, Jen, and, and, and 
score 12 people came and helped us. People were amazed at their servant attitude, you know, just the culture that you guys have. They didn't have to say anything. They just demonstrated it. And some of you in your, your family, the best way to do it is to demonstrate it with your actions. And then the next one is go into your work with your coworkers, customers, patients, employees, or bosses, and preach the gospel to them. And that's a little harder these days. Some of us can get fired for that. But wouldn't it be worth it? So the boss, so you, you, know, you keep your job, but then the boss goes to hell or, or your employee or whoever. And the next one, um, actually, and, and let's stay on this one. There's a story of Stephen Baldwin, the actor. He's a Christian. He's like the Baldwin brothers. He's the Christian one. And the way he got saved is he had a Brazilian uh, a lady who came in and cleaned his house. And they, she didn't speak hardly any English. And she was just so joyful. She sang hymns. And he was like, finally, like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so happy? And she shared. And he became a Christian. So she did it to Steve Baldwin. You know, most of us would be like, Steve Baldwin, I want to be like you. <laughs> And then the next one, it says, go into your school with your friends, classmates, and teachers and preach the gospel to them. I've known a lot of kids who have Bible studies in high school or university, and it's effective. And that's a hard place to be, you know. You want to be cool. You don't want to be weird. And there's so much peer pressure. I don't know about, like, here. You've probably seen the, the, all the movies in America about high school stuff, drama. It's hard. But that, poss- that could be your area. That's your world right now. Make the most out of it. Like, I can't go to high school and say, yeah, you know, sit there and try to pretend like I belong. They're going to like, who's this old guy, you know? <laughs> and then, I know this is a surf culture, go into the water with other surfers and preach the gospel to them. That sounds fun, huh? <laughs> You're like, I could do that. <laughs> One of our guys, his name is Rick Yeomans. Uh, he's an older guy. His, his son is Nate Yeomans. He was a professional surfer. His best place to witness is in the water. You know, we're, San Clemente is a bit of a beach town too. Um, so basically, whatever your world looks like, you know, and if you're a mom with kids, preach the gospel to your kids. How many people, you know, Dion, this, the, the Sunday school, the guy who's in charge of all your Sunday school, you know, he would say that so many people get saved as, as Christians uh, when, they're, when they're kids. Preach the gospel to your kids. That's your job. Whatever it is. So my prayer is that you'll help fulfill the Great Commission. So one other thing Jesus said, you know, he said, this is my last uh, thing. And then right before he left, he, he said, then go and wait and power will come upon you to be my witnesses. So I don't want to throw this big guilt trip on you because we really can't do anything. We can just reflect the light as best we can, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit. I think there was that, that someone gave a word about, it's not by might, not by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. And maybe it was pre-service prayer. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we have a couple minutes. Um, I, I just wanted to see if, if Donna Brown will come up. She kind of... Just um, we're going to be praying for some people now, just for the power of the Spirit. But I just felt to, before we go there, just while everyone has their attention focused here, I mean, Peter doesn't know what's been happening in this congregation before he came. 
he doesn't know that we've been going through the book of Romans and talking about the power of the gospel for the salvation of everyone who would believe. He doesn't know about that stirring that's been happening in our hearts for the lost and reawakening our heart. He didn't know that we having Alpha starting out because it's something we felt strongly as a congregation that God wants to reach those who are seeking him and create an opportunity for people, an easy way for people to come in and find Christ. He didn't know any of that. And so he's coming in here with a word that the Lord gave him to share with us. And it is exactly, it feels like to me, what the Lord wants to say to us. Isn't that encouraging? It's encouraging and also sobering. The Lord speaking very clearly to us. Felt like when we were praying this morning, God showing us the big and he's showing us the small. The bigness of his kingdom, partnership of churches all over the world. Lord, I want to be used in the nations. And then he comes and he, and he tells us about the small. In your home. Is, there are people in your home. There are people in your school. There are people in your work. That only you will see. No one else is going to see them, only you. And so it feels like there's a soberness in the Lord here. The Lord's been setting us up for this. We're starting Alpha in two weeks from now. And it's like the Lord saying, I want you to be praying for these people even before you share. Why? Because it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. The Lord is going to pull people's hearts towards him. So I just wanted to just join those dots just before we pray now for, for the power of the spirit. To actually just take a moment and, and acknowledge, Lord, you're speaking. And we don't want to miss what you're saying because it's God. You are speaking. It's not just men. It's not just a sermon. It's you, Jesus. And we love you, Lord. And we want to be a people that are obedient to the sound of your voice. We want to follow you and everything that that means, Lord. Not just in theory, but in practice. And yet we come before you right now and we acknowledge, God, we're so eager, but we're so weak. We acknowledge we are weak, Lord. But we are willing. We are willing, Lord Jesus. Yeah, Lord is moving. And it's interesting when you feel God wants you to share, and it's like, this seems like it doesn't apply to anywhere. And then he says that, and I'm like, <laughs> But Donna has um, kind of something on her life to help people really receive the Holy Spirit. And, and receive his power. So I, I asked her to just kind of lead this next time. And I know we don't have too much time. Um, but just to either get filled or refilled with the Holy Spirit. To have that power to be able to be his witnesses. So, Thank you. Good morning. How many of you know the presence of the Lord is in this place? How many of you know? I grew up in the church. But when I was laying on my bed at 12 years old by myself, crying at night, never heard of the Holy Spirit. But I was reaching out to the Lord, and I lifted my hands up. We was in a Methodist church. We didn't do that. But it was one of those moments. How many of you know we all have those moments when we, we want to know God? And so I was just reaching out. And I said, I wish I could touch you. And I began to pray in the Spirit. But I didn't know or have any understanding. Like I had never been told. I had never been taught. And it wasn't until I was in college that I received the Holy Spirit in the car alone, driving home. And I just said to the Lord, I wish I had the words to thank you for bringing me 
to be able to be among people like this that love you so much. I didn't feel like an outcast anymore. And when I said that, I just started speaking in tongues. I'm trying to shift my card. Because I still didn't really get what that was. And I came home and I read everything I could find in my Bible about speaking in tongues. I was like, how come I've never heard about this before? Let me tell you, I felt guilty all of my life because I loved Jesus and I didn't know how to share him. I didn't have the boldness. I was afraid. But I, I had the want to. How many of you have the want to? How many have the want to? To share Jesus. God does not want us to go home feeling guilty because we heard a sermon about sharing Jesus. That's not the point. The point is that we say, okay, Jesus, we say yes. And he said that if you, he, he told the disciples, you wait here until you're endued with power, and then you go. So I want to recommend to you today that you come, if you have not received that precious gift, I call it a prayer and worship language, because we pray in the Spirit, it says in the book of Jude, and we, we worship the Lord in the Spirit. It's a language you don't know. It's not weird. It's really, for the Christian, super natural. So don't hesitate. You might think, I'll oh, sound funny. Well, sound funny. <laughs> A lot of other people here will sound funny as well. You have control over yourself. If I speak in the spirit, I have the ability to control that. So Paul says, I pray in my language, but I pray in the spirit as well. It's not that you have to, it's that we get to. We get to. You can opt out. But oh my, when I received the Holy Spirit, God began to open doors. For me to witness, I was just sitting at lunch with my hosts, my wonderful hosts, Elvie and Chris. And we just started talking to the waiter. I said, what is your name? He said, my name is Prince. And so it just came out, do you know who the Prince of Peace is? And he's like, no, his name is Jesus. And we shared Jesus with him, and he stood right there in his waiter's app, and he prayed and accepted Jesus. A very simple thing. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through our lives. And I don't want to take too much time, Pastor. But I just want to encourage you. Don't leave here feeling under condemnation because you feel like you've got to go win the world. And who am I? How can I do that? He just wants you to win the one right in front of you. He wants you to see them. And Jesus said, I, I do what I see my father doing. And so you look into someone's eyes. The eyes are mirrored to the soul. And the Lord will quicken to you that they're ready. But I want to ask you today, are you ready? 
Have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? 